Good morning. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And we're going to look at what sort of thing this entity we call the kingdom of heaven or now the church is. What is it really? What's it like? And every Sunday we're coming at this. We talk about different aspects of it. That's always been the way. Jesus, when he would talk about the kingdom of heaven, we don't get one picture. We get, ah, the kingdom of heaven. It's like a woman who's baking a loaf of bread and mixes some yeast in it. And it's actually like a father with two sons and Yeah, like a guy who goes out to sow some seed and a guy that builds a vineyard. Yeah, the kingdom of heaven's like all that. So we come at it a lot of ways to describe one thing. Because sometimes you need a lot of metaphors for something that doesn't, that language does not lend itself well to. So we're going to look at one aspect of it here today. So if you'll join me in chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to him and placed a child among them. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If any one of you causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three gather in my name, I'm there with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? 
up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is precisely how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Even though these seem like unrelated kind of separate vignettes, they're all getting at something, which is actually the life of the church or of the kingdom of heaven together. And it starts out with one of these questions that's typical of the disciples. Because the disciples, as much time as they spend with Jesus, as, as often as they see how Jesus treats people, they still have a hard time getting out of their own mi- old mindset of how the world works. They still think about things that way. So they're still thinking about who gets the honor, who has the power, who has the authority. You know, God, you know, can you do something for us? When, when you are seated as king, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? They think the kingdom is kind of a matter of honor, as if it is just a re- reenactment of the kingdom that Israel had had before. That's actually what they're looking for. And they're thinking of the Messiah, that the Messiah is going to be a new David in the sense that he's going to be a king and conquer things. And they're still not, not getting how this kingdom that's coming is different from what they expected. So we have this opening scene. Who's, who's, who's the greatest? You know, which one of us is, you know, we know it's not that Judas guy, is it? Is it, is it me? You know, so, you know I mean, pe- you know, he's told Peter, hey, you're a rock. I'm, I'm going to build my church on the revelation that you had. He's told Nathaniel, you're a true Israelite in who there's nothing false. So there's probably some of them that are thinking, it's probably me. You know, I'm humble. I won't say anything in front of the other guys, but I know. It's me. You know, he handed me the fish first when he broke up, you know. John gets to, you know, lean on Jesus. I mean, that's, that's, who else gets to lean on Jesus? So there's got to be these thoughts in their heads. And he goes, well, let me tell you what it's like. And he calls up a little child. He says, unless you're like this little child, you know, you don't even have a part in the kingdom of heaven. You have to become like this little child. Well, what's so special about a little child? We talk... And there have been lots of good 
uh, sermons preached about childlike nature and how the children are innocent and pure. And I just want to say, have you met a (laughs) two-year-old? If you need proof that humanity has fallen, if you need a graphic example of the fallout of Adam and Eve's choice, be around a two-year-old, sometimes a five-year-old, sometimes a 40-year-old. It's not that they're innocent, but what is it? Well, at this time, in this culture, children really didn't have a value. They, weren't, they didn't bring anything to the table. You loved your kids, but you just loved them because you were, they were your kids. They didn't bring anything of value to you. You, you had hopes for them. Uh, in, a, in a day before savings accounts and Social Security, that was your retirement plan was your kids. But while they were still children, you know, you didn't have that assurance that they would grow up to be that. They, were, they weren't money in the bank yet. They were just your kids. And the only value they had was because you loved them. That's our, that's our standing in the kingdom. When we come into the kingdom, we don't bring anything but us. God loves us because we're his kid. He made us in his image. He loves us. That's why we have value. Not because we're articulate, not because we're smart, not because we're talented. That's, that has no place in your being called into the kingdom. It's just because you're his kid. It used to be, and I'm sure it still is, but I'm, I'm not in the same culture I was when I first came to faith, but you'd always hear people talk about different famous people and go, boy, I wish, I wish that guy would sit, get saved because God could really use him. You have this utilitarian view. That's why you want people to get saved. You know, man, that guy is just so talented. God could really use him. God does not call people into the kingdom because he can use them. God doesn't have a utilitarian view of us. He has a parental view of us. He loves us. He calls us to him because we're his children, who he wishes would call more often, basically. And that's our standing. That's our value. And when we come into the kingdom like that, when we don't come in and think, boy, is God lucky he got me. We just thank, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the family. I'm one of the kids. Thank you, Father. That's the basis of entry. And then we get, we move right from that. And he goes, and oh, by the way, when you come in as one of these innocent children that believe, sometimes there's going to be friction in the family. And Jesus says, you know, these things must come. And that when he says these things must come, It's not an expression of the will of God. It's not like God wants things to come into our lives that cause us to stumble, that cause us to lead away from him. But in the world as we have it now, these things are going to come. That's just the nature of creation since our parents made a bad choice. That's where we are in the story. We talk each week. I probably talk till you're tired of hearing of it, that the story of the gospel is that we have this loving God, a creator who made a creation for fellowship with us. And he said it was good. He looked at it and he goes, that's good. And through the bad choices of our parents, that whole thing got broken. That project was ruined. But God was not content 
to let it be ruined, but immediately began a project of redemption. And part of that project was he picked a man. He said, I'm going to make you into a family. I'm going to make your family into a nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless all of creation. And I'm going to, through that, ultimately reconcile it to myself. We have Paul saying, God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. Well, part of everything being reconciled to God is it's being reconciled to each other. So when we talk about the kingdom and the church, ideally that's going to be a place where we become reconciled to each other. We're a community together. But in that community, friction comes. Nowhere in the New Testament do we have a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the believer as a solitary thing. There's a popular Christian song that most of you are probably way too young to ever heard here, but me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. That was, that was a very popular Christian song in the 70s. That's, that's not biblical. Yes, you do have a relationship with Jesus, but you also have a relationship with all of his people. It's never a solitary thing. The New Testament assumes that we will to be together with fellow believers, that we would be part of this family. And that's why it tells us how to live together as family. So it's very different from a hyper-individualistic view. But at the same time, it's not a collective view. Jesus is going to talk about us living together and the friction that comes from that, but he also talks about the value of each one of us within that. This isn't a collective where You know, the collective good, it's okay to sacrifice. Nope, nope, this is a group project. But we all belong to the group and we all have value in the group. And so we need to treat each other like that. And he says, don't cause your brothers to stumble. Don't be a cause of stumbling for that. And we think of obvious ways a lot of the time, you know, don't, we're we're very good at picking out certain types of sins like, you know, drunkenness and carousing and watching strange movies and things like we're good at calling that stuff out and sad to say there are still Christians that lead their brothers and sisters into that sort of thing but there's also other sorts of things where we lead our brothers and sisters into being less than Christian because we've become less than Christian And we lead them into doing things contrary to the gospel, but in the name of the gospel. We're not as good at that. We're not as good at recognizing that and calling that out. And we don't need to do that. Because if we cause our brothers to stumble, and we'll we'll look at that a little bit more coming up, but it's, it's better than, be better if you had a millstone thrown around your neck and you were cast into the sea. What could be worse than drowning, you know? But Jesus says, hey, if, you've, you know, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Throughout all of this, Jesus is going to be using exaggerated language. Please don't cut your foot off and throw it away. I, w- I would think that we could understand hyperbole, but believe it or not, there was a time in the history of the church in the 90s where certain segments of the church took very seriously parts of this to the the detriment of things. 
But one of the things, when it talks about hell here, we're used to talking about hell. And when we talk about hell, we get this picture that actually owes a lot more to Greek thought than to biblical thought. We, we think of, you know, eternal punishment and, you know, eternal conscious torment is a popular thing in the church. The picture of hell here, he's actually talking about Gehenna, which is the garbage dump of Jerusalem. And we hear hell and we think of it in terms of the consequences of, of being saved or not saved. You know, I, I don't want to be punished. I want to be part of the good, good part. But here it's actually being useless. It's like if you're cast into hell, the problem is not so much eternal suffering, but you, you're useless. You're being thrown on the garbage heap. You're doing nothing for the project of redemption. So he's not so much threatening people with a consequence as saying you're not, he's telling them you, you want to be part of this project. If you do that, you're going to be tossed on the garbage heap with all the smoldering piles of garbage. It's, it's better for you to be cut something out of your life so you can go on and be of use to the kingdom, be, participate in the kingdom, than to just be thrown on the garbage heap. You weren't made to be garbage. You were made to be part of this life. So don't get thrown on the garbage heap. Then he'll say, don't despise the the innocent people. If if people are coming in and they they don't seem to have talents or anything, you don't despise them. He's like, "The, the, the faces of their angels see the face of my Father in heaven. I have no idea what to do with that. Uh, that that section of scripture. There's a lot of commentary on what this may or may be, and I don't find any of it totally convincing. I'm just, Jesus said it, so I accept it. He said, but what do you think? And then he gives the story of the the man that leaves the 99 sheep. What do you think? If a man owns 100 sheep and one of them goes straight, he's going to go find that sheep. Like I say, we are a family, but we each individually, every one of us count. God is the God who goes and chases the lost. He loves the lost. And he's happier when he gets that one back than about the ones that never went astray. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about the other 99. It just means he has more joy here because it was something he was potentially going to lose. When we look at the parable of the father and the sons, we focus on the the prodigal son. God celebrates the return. You know, the father, he celebrates, he sacrifices the fatted calf. But when his son that didn't go off comes back, he runs out to him too. We kind of ignore that because we love the, the, the more obvious repentance thing. But he loves his other son too, and he goes out to reason with him. So this isn't saying he doesn't care about the 99, but that he cares about each and every one of us. Incidentally, that used to be really valued in the church. We used to talk about people who had a heart for the lost, who were just broken by the things they see in the world and the sadness and the people they see that are lost. If you have the heart of your father, you'll love the things he loves. John 3.16 is really clear. God loved the world, so he sent his son. We should also be like that. We should love the world. And we should have a heart for the lost. 
We should love them like their father loves them. We shouldn't see them as like, oh my gosh, there's so many of those. So many people in the world that don't think the way we do. Our country is filled with people that are, have a different point of view on eternal subjects than us. Well, the biblical language for that is the fields are white unto harvest. It's not, oh my gosh, we're surrounded by those people. It's like, hey, look, there's a bunch of people to go talk to, to tell about what God is doing. You're surrounded by them. We actually talk about the nation of Israel was given that charge by God to be a blessing to the world, and instead they hunkered down and just kind of tried to bask in it themselves and didn't even do a good job of that, so God sent them, on ex- sent them into exile. We punish, focus on the punishment aspect of the exile, but also part of what was going on was God said, I sent you into the world to be a blessing, and you're just hunkering down. Fine, I'm going to send you on the mission field, whether you like it or not. You're going to Babylon, and oh, by the way, while you're there, pray for their good and do good. Pray for their prosperity. That's part of the project, is loving those lost sheep. And then we go dealing with sin in the church. It says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go to them, be reconciled to them. This is very important to God. We have, sometimes people will ask, act like, well, if I'm, I'm right with God, it doesn't really matter what's going on with the church around me. And Jesus will actually say, he says in, in Matthew 5, he's like, if you're at the temple about to do your sacrifice and you remember you have a problem with one of your brothers, hey, just go leave your sacrifice there and go attend to that and then come back. It's very important to Jesus that we're not only reconciled with God, but that we're reconciled with each other. So he says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point it out to them. And if, if they hear you, great, you've won your brother over. If they won't, take a couple of other people with you, get some, get some neutral observers, because <laughs> it might be your problem, might not really be their problem. But if they still refuse to listen, bring it to the whole assembly. And if they won't listen to the assembly, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. People will misunderstand this. They're like, well, I did all this and they didn't do anything. So now we just wash our hands of them. No, you treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. How did Jesus treat tax collectors? He said, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. He didn't cut himself off from them. But he also didn't treat them like somebody he was going to receive teaching from, he was going to receive input from. They were somebody he would minister to, but not somebody that he would fully fellowship with in terms of receiving uh, input from them. And we're reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. So the person telling us, treat him like a tax collector, was a tax collector. There is a great hope and a future for pagans and tax collectors. Doesn't mean everything's done for them. It just means you're going, okay, you're acting like an unbeliever. I'm going to treat you like an unbeliever. We love unbelievers. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to help you out, but I'm I'm not going to let you get up on Sunday and share. And then Peter comes up to him. He's like, oh, you know, if you've told us how to deal with somebody we're arguing with, but how, how many times do I have to accept this from them? How many times do I have to forgive them if they say I've... I've messed up, and Jesus tells him, he says, 
depending on your translation, 77 times or 70 times 7. We need that standard. That is the standard God has with us, and we certainly need it with our brothers and sisters because in a world where we all have our own personalities and our own imperfections, we're going to upset each other. And if we don't walk in forgiveness, that can snowball. Sometimes you have a legitimate grievance with somebody. They have done something. They have wronged you. But if you don't make that right in your heart with them, grievances will begin to pile up that really have nothing to do with them. Somebody will have done something insensitive, and then you'll find yourself sitting across the room from them, looking at them going, look at them just sitting there breathing. You know, you will begin to find it offense in their very existence (laughs) because you haven't just said, okay, I need to forgive. And I need to forgive as many times as they ask it. There's not a limit. This is not, this is not stating a mathematical limit to grace. If you've done it 77 times, you know. I wish it were some days because there are some days somebody comes up to me and I'm like, you're fixing to be number 491, aren't you? <laughs> but that's... That example is just given there to say as many times. And incidentally, that is God's standard with us. Paul will talk in, in uh, Corinthians, he talk, when he gives his definition of love, he says, love always hopes and love always forgives. So we, that's how we treat our brothers and sisters. It's like, okay, we'll be reconciled. And why do we do that? And then we get this lovely parable of the, the two servants, and God, Jesus is really beginning to exaggerate here. Your various translations will set different amounts of, of gold as if that's the point, you know, that it's, it's people will try and, yeah, that's a lot, that's, that's, that's a year's wage. He's, he's, no, it's actually literally translated would be like Jesus going, he owed a gazillion bags of gold. The point is it's an unpayable debt. It's an unpayable debt of an unfathomable amount. And he's going to sell him and his kids to pay off the debt. And and that's really not going to repay the debt, but that's just a symbol of how bad this is. But he asks for mercy and he gets mercy. And then he finds his fellow servant. And really, in the original language, like I say, it's like he owed a gazillion and he meets his buddy who borrowed lunch money from him yesterday and hasn't paid him back. And he's like, you, I'm going to throw you into prison, you know, because you did not pay me for that Big Mac yesterday. And then your master hears about it and we get something really weird here. He says, I'm going to throw you into prison and you're going to be tortured. You're going to be tortured until you pay it back. If you're a Hebrew hearing this, this is weird because Jews don't torture people. That's a Roman thing. That's like, really? But God is saying, if you don't forgive your brother, this this is how the father will treat you. 
And that's where the torture thing really comes in because that is something outside the covenant. That is something outside the nation of Israel. It's almost like Jesus is saying, by the way, if you don't forgive your brother, God's going to throw you outside of the family. You're not going to be numbered. So this together gives us a picture. The picture here is not all the things you can do wrong, but it's how important it is to be reconciled to each other because if we do believe that God is reconciling all things to himself, part of that is us being reconciled to each other. And if the world is ever going to see that that is how God is doing things, they have to see it in us. They have to see us treating each other with love or at the worst treating each other like tax collectors and pagans who you still go to dinner with. You don't go by their house carrying a sign, God hates tax collectors. It's very hard to hear a message of love from somebody that's holding a sign that says why God hates you. Just not the currency of the kingdom. 